listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. the past two mornings, and so coming into the service, um, I was knew, knew I kind of need to hold a little bit in reserve so I wouldn't get to this moment and have no voice left, and then the worship team went and just, you know, brought us to the throne of grace, and so I'm so thankful for them and their, their talents and their energies that helped me connect with the Lord, and so uh, I'm hoping I have enough voice to get us through this morning. I just sound, I don't know, more serious now, um, but I might have to uh, have some water along the way. Uh, the theologian, pastor, and author A.W. Tozer uh, once famously said that what comes to mind when people think about God is the most important thing about them. It's a quote that's used uh, pretty often in our circles because it is a very perceptive quote about human nature and about how we interact with God. So one of the things I've, I've noticed throughout my time as a pastor and even just internally in my own life uh, that a lot of times we have these self-imposed obstacles that might keep us from either coming into a religious gathering like a church or even just personally on our own, there's obstacles that we put up that would keep us from coming to God. And one of those things that we put up in front of ourselves is our perception of how God views us. And so, like Dr. Tozer said, what comes to mind when we think about God is an important aspect of us, because what I have found, specifically in our context, because most of us did grow up with some level of church experience, we might understand in a theoretical sense what the gospel is and how Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and so he has made a way for us to come in here. I have found that so often people, uh, when they think about God and how God thinks about them, the overwhelming emotion that might come to mind is that God is disappointed in you. And I know I have struggled with that on a personal level. In my head, I know that Christ's work is sufficient. But in my heart, I often feel that God is just a little bit let down in who I am. That I will reach this moment when God's going to look at me and be like, you know what? I have given you enough chances. Let's just call it where it is. You've had enough opportunities. Has anybody ever felt like that? Okay, thanks that we are on the same page. So I would just say this. It is no accident that you are here this morning. We don't believe in that as we serve a God with a divine nature who can see all of human history. It is no accident that you are here this morning because God has something he wants to say to you this morning. Romans chapter 8, this very last section that we're going to be going through that Amanda and Mandy recited for us so beautifully, uh, has been termed at different points by different theologians and different people who have reflected on the scriptures. They have given it this title for these specific eight verses as the hymn of assurance. And it does feel like that. It feels a bit like poetry once you get into uh, Paul's exhortation to the church and all the different ways he unpacks this reality. And so it does kind of feel like that poetic song that needs to well up within our souls. And if it had a word attached to it that should uh, anchor us this morning in this text, I think assurance is an appropriate word. 
that what we already heard and what we're going to continue to dig into is God's hymn of assurance for us this morning, that if we have ever been in that moment and what has inhibited us from coming to God is this sense that God's looking at your life and feeling disappointed, let's dispel that feeling this morning. So I want to walk through these verses this morning and let us reflect on the goodness of the God that we serve. Verse 31 of Romans chapter 8 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's always interesting when you begin a, a sermon that is referencing something that has come before it. And so I know most of you have been journeying along with us as we go through the book of Romans as a whole. But I would say even specifically this last chapter and these different ideas Paul has been unpacking. If we think just specifically to Romans chapter 8, I think that's what he's referencing because he's saying, what shall we say to these things? So two big themes that have already come out of uh, Romans chapter Chapter 8, one is the idea of sin. And so it talked about that at the very beginning, that although there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, it's like there's this war going on between us, the, the flesh and then the spirit that is at work. And so I think that's what it's referencing. And Paul's already talked about quite a bit, like us as a, even a follower of Jesus, even far along in our faith, are going to continue to wrestle with sin. And so we need to continue to pour into the spirit and let the spirit work life in us. But we have that aspect of our life that we are going to succumb to sin. We are going to choose sin over and over again. So what do we do with those things? And then also that second aspect of Romans chapter 8, so it kind of transitions from sin into what we talked about last week was suffering. It's like the whole of creation is groaning. There's just this reality that all of us just being in this broken existence, there's a level of suffering we're just not going to be able to avoid. And so that's part of just the human experience, both of those aspects, struggling with sin, struggling with the suffering that's going to come about in our lives. And so that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, what shall we say to these things? What should we say to the reality of the fact that all of us are going to struggle with sin and all of us are going to go through suffering? What shall we say? This is what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? What a profound statement. It should make us pause in those moments when we think God is looking down on our lives, disappointed, or looking at us and just being a little bit let down. If we have that inclination within our hearts that this is how God views us, we should ask ourselves over and over and over again, when I think about my heavenly Father and how he views me, is he disappointed? Or as the scripture says, is he delighted? In the book of Zephaniah in the Old Testament, chapter 3, verse 17, he actually says that about the people of Israel, that he delights over them in his love. And if you know anything about the Old Testament prophets, there's not a lot of that boys within the Old Testament prophets. It's not moments in the history of the Jewish people or in the people of God that you're just knocking it out of the park and doing it right. And in fact, in Zephaniah, like many of the other minor prophets, he, the prophets show up on the scene to let them know all the ways that they have let God down, how they have not upheld their end of the bargain, that they have turned to lesser things, that they have been distracted, that they have disobeyed the Lord. But in spite of all that, the view God has towards his people, it says it clearly, he delights over them with his love. And so we need to ask ourselves, if we struggle with that question, if God is for us, who can be against us? It has to push against that inclination we're going to have that God is disappointed in us. Because we are going to ask the question, if God is for us, 
And so that's why Paul continues in the very next verse. He gives his justification for why that is a rhetorical question. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. He who did not spare his own son, if you have struggled with that reality, is God actually for me? If God is for me, who can be against me? But is God for me? The cross is the testimony of God that he is for you. That is the justification. I love the song we sing sometimes uh, on Sunday mornings entitled, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. It has just very rich lyrics, and I love the very opening line of that song. It says, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. God has given to his people what is most valuable, and that is Jesus Christ. And may we never believe the lie that God has withheld something that we needed. Because that's going to contend against our view of God as well. As we struggle with sin, as we go through suffering, we are going to be tempted to think that God has deprived us or withheld something that we needed to get us through this life. And may it never be with us as we reflect on the reality of Jesus on the cross. There is nothing God has withheld from his people. He has bestowed all his love on us, and we can see that in the backdrop of the crucifixion. Don't ever find yourself thinking that there is a limit on God's love towards you. He has shown that it is not the case because if you think about um, the moments we celebrate in Easter, you think about Jesus in the garden, the beloved son of the father, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, as he was in anguish leading up to this moment of separation and he prayed to the father and said, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. And as the prophet Isaiah said, it was the Lord's will to crush him. Jesus, in that moment, experienced separation from the Father so that we would never have to experience it. If you have ever questioned the love of God towards you, question it no longer. He sacrificed the Son. He gave him up for us all. I think sometimes we think there might be a limit towards God's love because that's what we experience in a human way. We think to ourselves, like, how could not God not get tired of us because we get tired of us? We place our human limitations on our perception of God. So once again, what's you, what you think about when you think about God is a very important aspect of you. And you have to ask yourself the question, have you been projecting your limited capacity to have overwhelming love on the all-powerful, all-creative, loving God of the universe who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all? Have you been using your view of love to limit how God wants you to experience him? Verse 33 says this. It says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I find that one interesting as I just personally reflect and as I read through the Bible and, you know, I hear, you know, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that kind of pumps me up a little bit. But when I get to this one, like, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's a part of me that says in my head, like, well, a lot of people, namely myself. 
And that's something I struggle with, like that I, in fact, feel like there's a lot of charges brought against me. Like I feel accusations against my position as a son of God or as a Christian or even as a pastor. I feel those accusations all the time. And sometimes those are external from people in different situations. And uh, more often than not, they are internal. Like I, I feel that all of the time. And here's one of the difficulties in that reality. A lot of the accusations I hear both internally and externally are true. There is truth to the things I would say about myself in a derogatory way that I have not measured up, that I am not good enough, or maybe I feel like I've let God down a little bit. And this is a reality we are all going to face. Almost every single day of our life, we are going to have to contend against accusations about our position with God or about how God has acted on our behalf. In fact, you know, we want to just be clear. We believe in a spiritual reality around us. We believe in spiritual evil. We believe that there is the devil. We believe that there are demons who want to lead us astray from God. And in fact, in the book of Revelations, uh, the devil himself is described as an accuser. It says he is the accuser of the brothers. And so there is this reality that as we read this, we should be encouraged, but we should also recognize that this is a, a serious component we are going to have to contend against every day of our life. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Many people, many realities, many principalities, myself included. I'm going to cast accusations at myself. But what does Paul say? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemned. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There are going to be accusations. There are going to be elements of truth within those accusations on how we have fallen short. But that next question is very important for us. Who is to condemn? It should bring to mind the interaction Jesus had with sinful people. The one that comes to me just most clearly is the woman caught in adultery. We've taken time to study before as a church, um, and we know that situation where she is dragged out. And one of the things that is just so striking to me in that moment is the Bible does not contend against what she was caught in. It never brings a question mark on if she was actually guilty of that transgression. It doesn't question that. You know, we can question the motive of the people who brought her out, but it never quibbles about that in the Bible. She was guilty of that transgression. And so what, within the law of Moses, was her punishment? It was death. And so there are going to be charges brought against us that are going to be true. But what is the follow-up to that question is who is to condemn? And what happens in that moment with that woman? Jesus makes it very clear that there is only one who has the right to condemn. His famous statement, he who is without sin casts the first stone, and all of the stones begin to drop. And so in that moment, for that woman, in the reality for all of us, the only person with the authority to condemn you doesn't. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I think we can recognize what Paul is doing with these questions is rhetorical. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You know, he is setting these things up so that we would understand. Um, but I think there is the reality to that question as we've portrayed. Like for most of these questions, there is like an answer to it. We might even feel opposed when it comes to us living this life. So even that first question, like if, who, if God is for us, who can be against us? We might feel like there is a lot of opposition in our lives. And so one of the things I've recognized is that one of the biggest struggles we are going to face in following Jesus is that we so often get fixated on ourselves and our own circumstances. And so, you know, when life is going well and we're showing up on Sunday morning and singing praise songs and getting handshakes and hugs and being encouraged, you know, we can kind of believe those things. You know, God's bigger than my problems. God's bigger than my circumstances. And we can look outwardly But then as soon as we hit those bumps in life and anything at all goes wrong, we immediately focus inward. And then we begin to struggle with those questions. When before on that good sunny day, we could answer those questions in the way Paul is setting them up. You know, if God's for me, no, it can be against me. But then we hit that moment of opposition and we immediately focus inward. You know, it's like uh, when the author of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, that has a profound impact on the way we live our lives. And so they're definitely using this vision idea as a metaphor, but there is this reality that wherever you are looking, that is the only thing that is, um, has clarity in your field of vision and everything else is a little bit out of focus. And so that's just the way our vision works that we can kind of pick one point that's going to be the, the center of all that we see and the other things are gonna be just a little bit blurry. And so what I have found is that like as soon as I hit those moments, I immediately fixate on myself and my own circumstances. And then those questions don't seem as easy to answer. Man, who will bring a charge against God's elect? I don't know. I feel pretty accused right now. I feel pretty beaten down right now. It's like the story of Peter walking on water. When he's been having these experiences with Jesus, and he has this uh, profound moment of faith when he is uh, in the boat, and they see Jesus performing the incredible miracle of walking on the sea out towards them in the boat, and they're confused and just confounded by the realities of Jesus's divinity. And, and, you know, Peter has that moment of clarity and says, Lord, you know, if it's you, call me out of the boat. And Jesus says, come. And uh, man, kudos to Peter for the reality that he stepped out of the boat, because I feel like many of us would never get out of that boat, but he does. He gets out of the boat, and he's walking towards his Lord and Savior, and things are going well. And then what does the scripture tell us? He says he begins to see the waves, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus. And what happens in that moment? He sinks. And so for us, as we are just bumbling and stumbling along towards the reality of eternity with our Savior, we got to remember when we hit those moments, and we're going to be um, uh, so um, influenced to look inward at our circumstances, we have to look bigger than that. We have to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We are going to fixate on the immediate, and it's going to be to our detriment. And that's why Paul gives the same justification after both of these questions. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. For both of these questions and answers, the justification Paul gives for how we can have confidence that this is true is the cross of Jesus Christ. He goes back to the crucifixion again. Our understanding of this act is critical in our understanding of God and how we think about God and how we think God thinks about us. And so ask yourself the question, whatever you are facing in life right now, do you think it is more significant, more powerful, more influential, more revealing, more potent than Jesus's self-sacrifice? Jesus on the cross is the foundation of our eternal security. And so whenever you think that your moment, your struggle, your issue you're facing is bigger than the cross, let the word of God lovingly correct your perception. We need these reminders in our life, and I think that's so important why Paul continues to go back to that and why we can't ever really like move past the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can move deeper into it, but we don't get to the, the fancy things later on in our religious walk. You know, we have to come back to this over and over and over again that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son to let us not believe for a second that God has withheld anything from us and let us not question the love that God has for us. Paul continues, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, Paul gets into these lists and he starts uh, kind of unpacking all these different realities we might face. And then, then you hit verse 36 and it's kind of this interesting quotation that's thrown in there because there is this reality so far. It's felt pretty uplifting. And, you know, Paul is encouraging us to live for God and what God has done for us. And even that list of, hey, you might face persecution, you might do all these things. And then he just drops this quote in there. It says, for your sake, we are, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So where it says it is written, it's always referencing another part of scripture. And so Paul is quoting Psalm 44 which is this really interesting psalm. And in fact, we're going we're gonna to take a break next week from Romans, and Pastor Charlie's going to teach through the entire psalm of Psalm 44. But one of the interesting parts of Psalm 44, you know, so often in the scriptures, when calamity has come upon the people of Israel, it has been because they have turned their back on God. But in Psalm 44, um, there is this lament going up from the people to God because they have not rejected God. They haven't turned to uh, false worship. They haven't turned to idols. And they are asking God, why are we still being killed? And I think why Paul drops this in there and why it's important for us that although we might be good Christian people and we know we don't deserve God's love, he bestows it upon us, so often we still operate under the karma principle. That if things are going good in my life, it's because I did something good and I deserved it. If things are going bad in my life, it's because I've done something bad and God's 
punishing me. And Paul's just trying to blow up that reality for us with this entirety of all of these verses that yes, we will need to evaluate if we are walking in the truth of God, but God's love is steadfast for his people regardless of what goes on around us. So he's saying tribulation, famine, nakedness, don't know what that means, sword, all of these things could go wrong. In fact, all the way up to the point of being killed but that would not mean that you have failed or that God has failed you. We need to get that out of our heads because the reality that Paul wants you to know is that neither sin nor suffering can separate you from the love of God and his favor could be upon you even though everything in your life has gone badly because God is focused on eternity and bringing you to himself. Um, the other reality that we can remember is that the believers who were receiving this message would have actually been facing all of that list. Now, I think when we read it, you know, tribulations, distress, sword, it's like, yeah, you know, life's a little bit tough, or this went wrong, or this didn't go the way I, I, I wanted it to, or, you know, we are being killed all the day long, like we would probably have to take metaphorically, but for the people receiving this message, and needing to believe that God's love was for them, that he was still with them, that he was never going to leave them, never going to forsake them, they were actually facing all of these things because we are going to be tempted. You know, like we get drawn inwardly on ourselves when we face difficulty or obstacles. You know, when, when the moment goes bad, when life just hits you out of nowhere with that thing you didn't see coming or you never thought would happen, you know, we, we begin to ask all these questions of God. You know, what did, what did I do wrong, God, that you would allow this to happen in my life? John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, whose ministry led the way for Jesus to come on the scene. And so God used him to prepare the way, even as he said, and he was preaching and he had gained followers and he had gained a reputation as a man of God, as a prophet of God. And then Jesus shows up and everybody leaves John and starts focusing on Jesus. And so he has some great moments where even people are like, hey, John, people aren't following you. They're following Jesus. And he says, you know, the best man, uh, you know, isn't the bridegroom. He just gets to celebrate with the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease. But then life keeps happening. He keeps preaching, but then he finds himself at odds with the local authorities and preaches against Herod, and he gets arrested. He gets arrested for preaching the truth about God. He's preaching against moral evil, and we get this moment, this interaction where, where John doubts. You know, he's like, this, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. Like, have I done wrong? Has Jesus failed? Is God's love still for me? And he, and he sends this message. He has this moment of doubt, this moment of uh, wondering why things have turned out the way they are. And he, so he sends a message to Jesus, and he says, are you the one, or should I wait for somebody else? He questions. Life has been difficult for him. You know, that song we sang uh, right before I came up, How He Loves it's a wonderful song. I love that song. It was written by a guy named uh, John Mark McMillan. Uh, it kind of got popular by David Crowder, but he didn't actually write it. But John Mark McMillan, he, he's written a lot of songs I really like. Um, and um, I, I've heard him share the story of that song that doesn't get out there all that much. But he was actually a youth pastor, and his best friend was also a youth pastor. And one night they had this prayer meeting on how they wanted to see God move through the youth in their city. And his best friend, his name was Stephen, left that night, and he was killed in a car wreck as he 
went along the way. And John Mark McMillan wrote this song dealing with the grief he had experienced. So if you actually look up the original recording, it's like seven minutes long, and there's this third verse, and he talks about it. He says, I thought about you the day Stephen died. And what he reflected on in that moment of grief, that although his friend's life ended prematurely, what he knew about his friend is that Stephen would say that you still love us because life's going to do that to us. Things are going to go wrong, and it's going to make us wonder if God's love is sufficient for the, shrub, the trouble I am facing today. And so that's why Paul is saying, what's going to separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, shall distress? And then he answers it. Verse 37, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Man, if you just read verse 37 without verse 36 and 35, you might think that life goes well. But what is the Christian notion of conquering? We should ask ourselves that. What the Bible portrays as being a conqueror through Christ is that we conquer all things through belief in Jesus. And that's what Paul is saying. And you should think about some of the other writings of Paul that, you know, about when I am weak, God is strong. So I will boast all the more in my weakness because God's grace is sufficient for me, that I can endure all things. I've endured uh, plenty, and I've endured lack, and I can say confidently, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so when it says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, that does not mean we overcome all the worldly obstacles that we think we are going to face, that nothing else is going to go bad because I just have enough faith in Jesus that everything's going to get out of my way. He's saying no. What it means is that you go through every moment of suffering, you fight every struggle with sin, that you endure all the different aspects of the brokenness of this world and believe that Jesus is still enough, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. As John wrote in the book of Revelation, we will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That's what it means to be more than conquerors. We are conquerors through belief that anything could happen. We could face every trial, even unto death. We could lose every earthly possession. You know, life could just chew us up and spit us out. And none of that would indicate that God doesn't love you, that he has something bigger for you. Paul turns the corner on this rhetorical style, and in verse 30, uh, 38, he says this, for I am sure. So he's been mounting this argument up to this point. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. You know, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. And he's, he's gotten through all of his arguments, and then he says this. He says, I am sure. What is he sure of? He is sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, Paul loves a good list. 
And you can, you can tell he's, he's searching for a way to kind of describe all the dimensions of our reality, like anything that we could possibly perceive us that could be something that would undo the work of God in our life, like life or death. You know, maybe we get a lot of things and uh, we could be distracted by those things. Things could go well in life. He's like, God's love isn't going to be separated by that. He's like, even death, you know, um, all, all of the, the difficult aspects of life being piled upon this, he's like, that's not not going to separate you. And then he just kind of goes through all the different things, angels or demons, any of them, they can't separate you. Things in the past, things to come. So even like that time dimension, it's like he's just trying to mount this argument. Like he just wants us to understand that there's none of the things, none of the things are more powerful than the love of Jesus as displayed on the cross of Christ. He wants you and me to know that. So he just prefaces it at the end. He, he lists all the things, height, death, love, any of those things. He says, nothing else. Nothing else in all of creation. There's not the thing out there that has more power in your life than the love of the Savior for you. And I think one of the reasons Paul really kind of reiterates this point over and over and over again is because we're going to forget it. Once again, we are going to hit that bump. We're going to hit that moment. So one of the things I've, I've found as I've studied the Bible over and over again, you know, there are a lot of different concepts and ideas, but over and over again in the Bible, you get just this command to remember. We have to remember the things of God. We have to remember the love of the Father. He is going to reiterate this over and over and over again because we're going to forget. You know, I don't think I could... Recall or count on my hands the number of times in my adult life or even as a pastor where I have sat and felt like God was let down with my life. Like, I don't think I could recall that many times because it has been so, so frequent where I have felt like that, that when God looked at me, he was disappointed or God looked at me and he was let down, that he would say, you know what, again, really, Jared? And it has had to have been in all those moments either uh, the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit or the opportune Bible verse that just showed up at the right time or that person in my life that God used to remind me of who he actually is. That when he looks at his kids, he sees Jesus. And so that's why he can say, I delight over you in my love, not because of uh, the good things I did, but because I'm his, because I'm his kid. So what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If, if he is for us. Jesus on the cross says he is. So my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is that whatever you came in here with this morning, whatever doubt, whatever struggle, whatever level of suffering that is plaguing your life, whatever questions or accusations you are hearing within your own head, let us turn to the scriptures and remember the promises of God that if he is for you, nothing can be against you. And so no matter what you took away from today, 
remember these four words. He is for you. 